This is Plan B, Episode 9, for June 4th, 2013. Welcome to Plan B, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show contemplating the future and present of Bitcoin with insights for the novice, shop talk for the expert, and opinionated discussion for the interested observer of Bitcoin and related technologies. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-host, Drew. Hello. Hello, sir. Guess what? Uh, big show. Big show. Big show today. Yep. Today, we're, not only do we have some great emails from our wonderful audience and some news that we're going to have to get into and, and really sort of chew on. We're going to invite Adam B. Levine on from the Let's Talk Bitcoin and Daily Bitcoin website. And uh, we're going to talk about his thoughts on busting the information monopoly that the big media companies have and how Bitcoin could be our solution to save us all. So that'll be a good conversation. I'm not setting the bar too high there, do you think, Drew? Uh, no, we okay. should be okay. okay. You're okay. Well, why don't we start with the emails before we get into all that stuff. First off, it comes from Terrence. And by the way, you can email the show, plan B at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Terrence says, gentlemen, I've been listening to Plan B from the start, and I really enjoy your show. I'm also a big fan of the Linux Action Show. I'm writing because I think you're missing a very important point regarding Mt. Gox and the Dewall account being seized by the Department of Homeland Security. I was pretty worked up about it, too, until I actually sat down and read the indictment. The main thing I got out of it is this. The case against Mt. Gox can't succeed unless the United States government officially recognizes Bitcoin as a legitimate currency in federal court. There is no way for the folks at Mt. Gox didn't see this coming. At the time, they created their Wells Fargo account. They did not have to reg- they did not register with FinCEN as a currency exchange because Bitcoin was not a recognized currency. Uh, <clears throat> that's an interesting point. Uh, but it was only a matter of time until it was. Which is why I am not. Uh, which is why I believe they used a shell corporation to insulate themselves from any real damage when something finally did happen. The reason I think Mount Gox knowingly took the risk is twofold. First, they didn't have deep enough pockets to weather the storm, and second, they're in a position to benefit from the most of the spike in the market that will happen when Bitcoin does become a recognized currency. I do agree that Mt. Gox owns too much of the market, and the currency exchange should have more competition, or better yet be decentralized entirely. But I do not think there are quite the strain and stain on the Bitcoin community that you suppose. Ultimately, they took a calculated risk that will move Bitcoin forward toward becoming a legitimate currency, and in the end, this will be a pivotal moment for Bitcoin. Just my two cents. Keep up the good work. When I when I heard about this, the, uh, um, you know, Gox getting, or the Dwala account being closed, I mean, I thought that the money transmitter was like the... You know, you're just you're just converting. Not it doesn't really matter what you're converting to is what I kind of assume. So it sounds like he, he's saying that. I mean, maybe Mt. Gox put like a, a little pawn out there for the U.S. to go after as a proxy and not being able to attack them directly, and they're so, trying to like buy their time or something. Is that so what, what Terrence is supposing is that the people that have one of the worst track records. Well, I shouldn't say that at all, <laughs> but they have a pretty bad track track record in terms of incompetence and not being ready for the demands of the market. Now, you could argue that they have just did the best effort they could, and it's just been whatever you know roadblocks were in their way. But what Terrence is supposing is a mastermind-like level of chessmanship 
where Mount Gox was thinking 13 or 14 steps ahead, where they knew then several years or whatever that, that they would need to be in this position. So they lied on a legal form in order to force an issue. And that also then assumes that Mt. Gox would be willing to take all of this liability and and the, the, the CEO of Mt. Gox specifically in order to push this issue forward. I think that is granting them too much goodwill and assuming too much, like, you know, good intent on their part. I, I, I think it was just them trying to make a quick buck and making a mistake. That's my impression. But, I mean, I would love for Terrence to be right. What do you think, Drew? Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. So, I mean... It would be, I don't believe that they're really this, you know, this forward thinking in this regard. I mean, that would be pretty, that'd be some big strategy. That's some big scheme stuff. And I mean, you're kind of putting like uh, Mark would be putting himself quite a bit at risk, I would think, for, you know, going out on a limb like this. Right. What that would be saying is that Mark's like, well, uh, in order for my business to be ultimately successful, what I need to do is force one of the most litigious governments in the world to come after me. So that way they will be forced because I know I, I know they will lose the case somehow. So they'll be and, and, they, and thus they'll be forced to declare Bitcoin a legitimate currency. Right. When in fact, what it appears potentially, I mean, we've been looking at the seizures, um, you know, the shutdown of Liberty Reserve. And, and today there was a whole like another 25 domains, quote unquote, seized. It looks like what the federal government is actually doing is potentially building all of these examples of how digital currencies are used for money laundering. So when they do get to the legal battles, they're going to have a whole, a whole portfolio of examples of, of, right, of bad right. things that have been happening. Yeah, and because all say. of these have been decided and all of these will have been, you know, uh, um, decided upon by the time they get to this stage, they're going to be able to stand on top of this foundation of prosecutions. Yeah, a bunch of different cases from similar things that kind of, you know, provide a similar type of service. You know, the the uh, anonymity that, you know, Bitcoin provides, Liberty Reserve was doing so. You know, they'll be able to cite some examples, I'm sure. They'll be able to, they must have some kind of detailed information about um, any nefarious activities that were going on with Liberty Reserve and try to correlate them with what can be, what can Bitcoin do and then try to find some cases like that and then build a case against Bitcoin. Exactly. But, exactly. Or the companies that, you know, provide the infrastructure. Because, I mean, I don't think, it seems like that they would, their primary thing the federal government would do would go for the infrastructure that surrounds Bitcoin. You know, they can't really. Right, they, they can't go to Bitcoin, but they can go to they can go to merchants. They can go after exchanges. Obviously, they can go after the points where people are converting Bitcoin into money. And like Webby Wizards is saying in our live chat, it just it seems it seems very unlikely that Mount Gox was thinking this far ahead. Since when you look over the history of incidents that have happened at Gox, a lot of times you go, "Wow, how did they not think of that?" I mean, there right, hasn't right. been they don't have a huge demonstration of past moments where they've been really thinking ahead. That's a hard thing for me to sit here and judge because I admit as somebody who's done, you know, system administration for almost 15 years and keeping servers running, your biggest successes are all the little things people don't notice because things just went off without a hitch. And so it's hard, it's hard to fully judge them. And I admit that up front, but from an outsider's perspective, it doesn't seem like they've had a lot of forethought so far. Yep. Agreed. All right. Well, uh, Chris, not this Chris, a different Chris writes in, <clears throat> says, hi, Chris. Whoa, <laughs> that's weird. And Drew. And Chase. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know you're a very busy man, but I was hoping you could help me with something. All right, let's see what we can do here. From all the shows I've watched and listened to, hosted by you, I've been inspired by Bitcoin. Now it's fair. Uh, now, to, now to be fair. I'm a Bitcoin newbie, and I don't really know where to start. I want to keep, I want to keep Bitcoin mining running on one of my VMs on a server. Do you recommend a program that is easy to use to do this? Also, what steps do I need to take to accepting Bitcoin payments and etc.? 
I wish to thank you in advance for any help you can offer, Chris. Oh, you probably know boy. about you probably know about virtualization more than I do, but uh, I mean, because you're, it sounds like he's going to have to do CPU mining unless unless the VM can you know access the GPU hardware to process. You know what you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and right? that's very unlikely. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't think so. So it, it's almost it sounds like he's just going to be doing CPU mining. Yeah, and even and even then, you know, it's not going to be as as it's well efficient. performing. Yeah, right. and and you got to figure CPU mining is essentially pointless. When it comes oh, okay. to Bitcoin mining, anyways, right? Yeah. There's, I mean, there's really unless you're in Antarctica and you need some heat, you know. But uh, beyond that, yeah, I, uh, I mean, there's there's just almost no way to make a profit. There is no way to make a profit. There's not even an almost. There's a hundred percent no way to make a profit CPU yeah, mining Bitcoin. Even if the value increases significantly, you're still not going to break even. I mean, you'd have to have you would have to have access to thousands of CPUs, <laughs> and and you'd still be you'd still suck. So uh, I would, you know, now Litecoin mining, now you're talking a different game there. You might be talking a different game. And And you're still hedging your bets on a a pretty big increase, you know, in the price of Litecoin also. Yeah, exactly. But now would be the time. Um, So, and even then, now, then you just need to focus on a VM that gives you as much access to the CPU as possible. Now for payments, that's a bit easier of a problem to solve. Uh, If you need something small scale, I'd recommend Coinbase. And if you need something a little more merchant scale and, you know, uh, anything from like a point of sales to a web store, I would probably take a look at uh, BitPay. Right. Yep, those are the two I was thinking, too. Yeah. yeah. And the one thing I've been continuing to to uh, get around to, but just have not gotten a chance that BitPay does is they even offer a uh, sort of like a proxy offering to Amazon. So you can have an Amazon store on your website and accept Bitcoin. They will do the conversion and part of the order processing. I mean, that sounds that sounds awesome. So, yeah, yeah. So the, it's essentially a store that's fulfilled by Amazon, and you can accept bitcoins. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, that they're really working, they're working cool. a way to get to that point where it's almost you know it's almost you know from the beginning to the point from uh, beginning to end of the transaction you know you're getting to that point in using bitcoins. They're almost there. These guys need to sponsor our show. That'd just be great. Plan, <laughs> yeah. plan B at JupiterBroadcasting.com. Bitbag, contact us. Unknown emails us in, and he says. Uh, in what ways do you think the U.S. government would have to evolve if Bitcoin were to become the de facto currency? Also, should Bitcoin users welcome another financial collapse like the one in 2008? Whoa, that's heavy stuff. <laughs> welcome <clears throat> is, I don't think, the right word. Welcome yeah. is definitely, yeah. Uh, so uh, let's start with the first part. What do you, how do you think the U.S. government would have to evolve if Bitcoin were to become the de facto currency? No deficit spending. Um, very you know, little debt. Think about think about what a, what a fully public ledger means to the United States government. It means that they have to actually tell you where they're spending their money. Well, that's true, but it also what? but also means when it came to tax time, there's no getting away from Uncle Sam. True, That'd because be they'd have point. a copy of that, and you <laughs> and I guarantee you they would be have some excellent blockchain parsing tools. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say if if some if someday Barack Obama woke up and said, uh, you know, and by the way, I mean. Let's say we are definitely getting way out there on a ledge, but let's just say, let's say one day uh, he uh, Barry wakes up and he says, uh, and he, he gets out of bed and he looks over at Michelle, Michelle and the kids. Hello, everybody. I'm going to switch to the United States to Bitcoin today. And then they look at them and they say, are they serious? And he says, yeah, I'm serious. I'm switching to Bitcoin. Uh, I, I don't, I, I think that it necessarily wouldn't be the savior at that point. I mean, I think some of the benefits to Bitcoin is, is a little outside the system. True. Yeah, I mean, for the if the U.S. were to switch over to it, 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 that would not be good. I mean, it's 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 one of those things where I, I think it's so ludicrous that that's going to happen at least in our lifetime that I I can't really quite seriously consider it. But I love the idea of it happening. 
it'd be interesting. I mean, yeah. it'd be cool, but yeah, I, I, there's, I, I cannot foresee an instance where this will ever occur. It would be, it would be really amazing though. I, uh, you see, the problem is, is it would, it would require a fundamental shift in policies and, and how we handle the world. I mean, the, the reason we went to a fiat currency that we could print on demand is because we needed infrastructure to build. We had a war machine to fund uh, and we have a world to conquer. <laughs> we're, we're, the, we're the great empire. Yeah, we're still in progress. I mean, I don't mean to... You think... I mean, everybody thinks that eminent domain ended once we reached the Pacific Ocean, but I got news for you folks. Uh, we got bases oh, yeah. in just about every country that'll let us, so... Uh, hundreds and hundreds. <laughs> I, hundreds of billion dollars spent on war. And there's a reason why we had to move away from the gold standard, and Bitcoin proposes some of the same limitations. Now, could you argue those limitations would do uh, the world uh, uh, good? Yes. Yeah, but, ethically, yeah. I think they're they're better overall. I mean, they give they give better incentives. I mean, what kind of incentives are you providing to a politician who has the access to the printing press and can do basically whatever they want? Now, let's yeah. talk about his second part, where he says, uh, "Should Bitcoin users welcome another financial collapse like the one in two thousand and eight? Welcome is the wrong word, but I think uh, the Bitcoin community would would definitely benefit because I mean, I think it would give greater confidence in Bitcoin and a lesser confidence in state-backed currencies, but uh, welcome, welcome is the wrong way to go about it. Yeah, and... and It sounds like you're, you're going, woohoo, you know, <laughs> we finally happened again, guys. We got another collapse. A lot of people are suffering. You know, it's yeah, a, and unless the Bitcoin payment infrastructure was widely deployed and widely accepted, there's not a, a ton of ways other than just in hoarding that the Bitcoin users will directly benefit. It, Bitcoin as a payment system would not necessarily... I mean, it would see, obviously, growth because people could do person-to-person -person payments. I believe... That Bitcoin will be completely successful regardless. I mean, I, you don't have to have another collapse. You don't, because the the way the direction the world is going is we're going to have several reserve currencies. We're going to have, we're going to have a lot of competing currencies in the future because so many generations have grown up with one currency. Now we think this is how it's always been, but this has actually just been a blip on the radar as far as humanity's been, right? right, right. And we're actually moving towards a world where there's competing currencies again. And uh, that'll have its own uh, benefits and, and, and downsides for uh, the different currencies. But I think it'll overall be a positive thing for Bitcoin. It means that we don't have to have a collapse in order for Bitcoin to see some sort of massive value increase. Correct. Yeah. I mean, because we're always, I think we're going to see a, a steady, you know, uh, positive uh, little arc for Bitcoin. So a collapse would be, like, you know, my aid in like a little short term spike. But of course, we're still looking at long term. So long term yeah. looks good. Yeah. And I, I maintain that, uh, you know, we start now, there's, there's these there's these CD areas that Bitcoin's going to be used, and then it moves from the gray markets into commerce markets, and then, you know, and and it's in that transitionary phase right now, and then eventually it'll be you know that like that week that Cashmere Hill lived, where she went to the uh, to the to the to the pastry store and she went to the coffee shop, it'll just be another payment form, and that'll be the next phase, and then it'll go from there to whatever it is after that. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, Drew, as we jump into some of the discussion here, let's call up Adam B. Levine. He's the editor-in-chief of Let's Talk Bitcoin. I think you could probably best describe Adam as a writer and speaker with a passion for explaining complicated technology like Bitcoin in understandable terms. And I brought him on because there's some of these things that I think he's got a pretty unique perspective on. Adam, welcome to the show. Tell me a little bit about uh, Let's Talk Bitcoin. Originally, when I started the show, the idea was going to was to you know was to deal with new users coming in, but pretty quickly it became obvious that there was such a hole in the market for 
for really deep digging into the the technical issues in, in a way that was still accessible to people who didn't have a really technical background, that that was kind of where we were going to be for the time being. So, you know, I mean, we've just been going, we've only been going for a month now. I know you guys just got started pretty recently too, but as we've been going through this process, we've kind of just been figuring it out as it went. So, you know, today we ran an interview with, uh, with fellow traveler on open transactions and BitMessage. We did a spot with, uh, with Charles Hoskinson or the Bitcoin Education Project. And I had the opportunity to interview the editor of American Banker Magazine talking about the legacy system. So, so, so we're sort of almost a variety show, you know, a segment-based variety show. I like it. Yeah, it's all the it's 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 issues about Bitcoin and issues around Bitcoin. And yeah. I thought, you know, since you've been covering this kind of stuff for a while now and following it, and I know you think about these kinds of topics a lot, even when you're not on air. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of stories that came up this week, and I just wanted to kick them around with you while we had you on the line. Yeah, hit me. Uh, so obviously, something you guys follow, something that Drew and I talk a lot about, are the exchanges. And there's a lot of issues around the exchanges. We just got done talking about uh, Gox a few minutes before we got you on the line here. And right now, at least in the U.S., one of the exchanges we kind of look at as doing things right is Trade Hill. But even Trade Hill is actually in a pretty untenual position long term. Uh, so, big, you know, with the recent uh, notes that came down from uh, FinCEN, they have to register as an exchange and get licenses in all states of the United States, every single state. And that clock is actually ticking right now. They have until September to get that done. They're on it. They're they're currently in a 180 day window to get this to pull all of this off, and this is one of the exchanges we look to as sort of the exchange doing it right, doing it by the book. But in reality, they could be a time bomb for all we know. And Adam, I guess my question to you is like, as somebody who's been following Bitcoin for a while now, this just continues to be an issue that we are constantly being caught flat-footed. What needs to change for this not to be such a vulnerability for Bitcoin? The issue is that the advancement in terms of the companies and in terms of the implementation. Well, so here's the problem. The problem is, is that exchanges right now don't operate like exchanges should. Instead, they operate like these mechanisms that do the same function as exchanges, but because they're not allowed to integrate into the banking system, because the banking system doesn't really want to have anything sure. to do with them. Right. You know, you, you wind up with this situation where there is no right answer. You know, I spoke with Jared Kenna of Trade Hill about two weeks ago on this topic. Uh, it didn't make it onto the show, but uh, but we talked about this, and his whole thing was compliance, compliance, compliance. And so even before this FinCEN regulation came down, their whole idea has been that not only are they going to comply with the letter of the law, but they're going to comply with the spirit of the law, and then right. they're going to go like 20% above and beyond that <laughs> with the assumption in mind that the rules are going to change and the rules are going to get tighter. So it doesn't matter if you're complying with the rules now. What matters is down the road. And we saw this with Mt. Gox too because Mt. Gox, you know, the, the thing that got them with DHS was actually a form that was signed three years ago. Mm -hmm. So now at the time, so now everybody he says, oh, well, how could Mt. Gox not say that they're a money transmitter? But, you know, turns out three years ago, they weren't a money transmitter under that definition. And so it's this retroactive, uh, it's this retroactive, not prosecution, but it's these retroactive actions where you do something and then like two years passes, the rules change and they say, well, two years ago you did this thing and that's not allowed anymore. So it's, it's, I don't think that there is a right answer when it comes to these exchanges. Trade Hill also, in order to limit their liability, doesn't take any customers that are going to do less than $10,000 worth of transactions. Right, right. So, I mean, so, so they are intentionally trying to limit their pool and stay a small player who can, who can provide that value. Now, at the Bitcoin 2013 conference, we saw so many different exchanges that were trying to start up. And many of them are starting up in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Mm -hmm. 
my feeling on that is that if you want to start an exchange, it has to be outside the U.S. You know, we're going to talk with uh, Constance Choi from uh, Kraken about this on Friday's episode, actually. But uh, who's the uh, legal counsel for Kraken, um, another uh, exchange that's coming up. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I just I just don't know how you do it because the rules aren't set. So how do you follow the rules? If, if we had so we were when we were chatting with Amir uh, Taki, he one of the things that he said to us was and this is very controversial. And he gets flamed on the Bitcoin talk uh, forums a lot is he, he would say, screw the system. Bitcoin is bigger than the system. Don't play by their rules. Can can Bitcoin ever see a level of success that it needs to if if we take that approach, do you think? Well, it depends on how you define success. Um, if you're talking about it, well, okay. So, so here, here are the two, here are the two sort of scenarios. The really bad scenario is it gets made illegal. You know, I don't care how you implement that. You effectively say this is illegal and that caps the price at a certain relatively lower number just because the pool of people who are going to be available to use it shrinks a lot. Right now the supply shrinks a lot too. So, so if your metric is, you know, dollar figures, then probably not. Uh, if your metric is, you know, use and being an alternative that is functional, then yeah, I mean, even in the illegal scenario, it still can function in that way because you can't really get rid of it as, you know, as, as you know, you know, without going to everybody's computer and, you know, actually taking it off their computer. It's a very difficult <laughs> process, even more so, I would argue, than, you know, gold confiscation or something like that in this day and age. Yeah. And I think uh, we look at it now as uh, as a question, will Bitcoin become successful? But I suspect, and we're going to talk about one of these technologies later in the show. But uh, you had a you had a talk at the Bitcoin uh, conference, the 2013 Future of Payments, where uh, the title of it essentially is "YouTube is Broken," and you were bringing out, you were bringing to light, um, very very eloquently so, some problems that uh, new media and new content producers face in monetizing their content, and Bitcoin seems to provide some fundamental solutions. To that industry, and I would, I'd be willing to bet there are hundreds of other industries just like it. That just the very aspect that it's a, a currency that is born of a digital nature, it can solve problems that we have been struggling with for very long. So I'd like to change gears and talk about that for a second with you. Um, and specifically during your talk, you you mentioned how you do a couple of things that are a little counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of content producers. Number one. You do a payment address for every show you post. It has a, you generate a brand new uh, Bitcoin uh, address for every single episode post, and then you put a widget on that page that publicly displays how many donations you've gotten for that episode. Can you tell me why you would do that? Because to I think a lot of people listening, that sounds like sort of putting your secret sauce right out on on the public for display. Well, you know, it's all about putting out value. If you're doing something that actually has value to people and that people appreciate, you know, so the concern here is the busker phenomenon where, you know, you're walking past some guy on the, you know, who's got like a guitar or something and they've got a jar out in front of him. And so you're just walking past. It's not like, you know, you're really spending a lot of time taking in that content. It's just, you know, this is something that's happening. And so if you see that there's a bunch of dollars in there, then you're like, oh, okay, that's an indication that this person is good, hmm. uh, good at what they do. And so therefore you're more likely to reward them. But what happens is that with media that people actually seek out to consume, that's really not the case. You know, when someone goes looking for a Bitcoin podcast and finds your podcast or finds my podcast, they're really happy about that. And even both of our podcasts, you know, I mean, that's the thing is that there's no real competition in this space because there's so little media right now right. that we're all just kind of like trying to figure out what's going on here, here in general. But, but to the point, um, when you're talking about media that has high quality associated with it or any content in, in general, then what you find is that when 
when you display how much you've gotten, then people will donate because they value it, but they'll also donate because nobody else has valued it. Mm. And, and so there's this, I mean, that, you know, I, I said it more eloquently in the talk, but people to give value for the value that they receive. I really think that that's a commonality, especially with people who have grown up on the internet. It's just that a lot of times the price that's being demanded is not necessarily the same price that you would give it if you were, you know, given the opportunity. And so this is a large, large problem because of the payment systems that we have. And Bitcoin really solves the small side of that. You know, I mean, it's easy if you want to give $200 to somebody, you know, for, for doing a podcast, if that's something you want to do, that's pretty easy. You can do that over PayPal. You can send them a check. It's really no thing. If you want to send them 50 cents, that's that's actually pretty hard. So with Bitcoin, you know, I mean, even right now where the transaction fees are pretty much as high as they're ever going to be right now at the exchange rates, I believe it's six cents uh, once you do the math um, for the transaction fee. So you're, you're still paying like a, you know, a 5%, uh, 5 percent, five to seven percent fee on that transaction for 50 cents. But ultimately, it's so much better than the alternatives. And there's really no minimum. You know, we receive tips as low as point zero zero one. Uh, of a Bitcoin, which is, you know, like, again, it's, it's what, like 30 cents or something like that. And we've, we even receive smaller ones, too. And sometimes people put messages in them, too. You know, we get ones that are like 0 0.001337 or something. <laughs> so, cool. you know, yeah, I thought it was cool, too. We get, yeah. we get those every once in a while. You know, and uh, looking at the wallet now, we've had uh, 214 tips total over the last uh, month and a week. Well, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, no, it's great. It's fantastic. You know, so I mean, so and and the other thing is, of course, we recently started accepting Litecoin tips. Now, tell me about man, that. Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, tell. Uh, what do you want to know? Well, so uh, has have you seen more activity on the Litecoin tips? Are people more willing to tip with Litecoin than maybe say Bitcoin? We have. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, we have 23 tips that have come in from Litecoin, and uh, but but the largest tips we have received have been Litecoin tips. Interesting. We have two largest ones because numerically they're quite large. So we received a tip. I think two episodes ago for a hundred Litecoins. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's great. You know, and that's really the thing is that when you don't tell people what to give you, instead you just say, this is what we're doing. It takes a lot of time and we spend a lot of effort on it. Right. You know, if you want to give us some compensation, then go ahead and send whatever you can. Then they legitimately do. And so the most common ones that we get are like 0 0.1, 0 0.001. And then we, and then a third would be uh, one Bitcoin. And that's actually a fairly common donation that we so get. So I kind of want to put it in perspective for the audience because you and I, uh, uh, I think you said you've been doing a podcast since about 2005, 2006, yeah. about the same time I have. Mm -hmm. And uh, I tell you, people really don't know actually how difficult it is to monetize this kind of stuff. Now, this is what I do for a full-time living, but it's taken me about seven years to get it to the point to be able to do that. And I'm talking seven years of extremely hard work, the hardest kind of work that I've, I've ever known was possible. And, you know, uh, it's, it's been a certain formula that I've had to land on. And one of the reasons, and I'll be completely honest with you, Adam, is uh, that interested me in Bitcoin back in 2011 was I saw it as a potential way to completely revolutionize, revolutionize the way new media is funded. I, I'm, I'm one of those people, I subscribe to the school of no agenda where there is a value for value model where if you believe you're getting something valuable from the content producer, you know, you would tip them appropriately for that as much as you can afford. And that's different for each person. And I, I find I find, too, that a big barrier to this and a problem that Bitcoin solves specifically is, you know, Bitcoin can be a world currency. One of the problems we have is we have people that listen from all around the world and there's different fees associated for every single different country that wants to donate right. to us. And Bitcoin just sort of neutralizes that. Yeah, no, it. Uh, you know, uh, you were talking earlier in the show about 
uh, well, you weren't talking specifically about this, but you said something earlier in the show before I got on that made me think of it. Um, Bitcoin is a global local currency, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a local so, currency of the internet. Right, it's a local currency of the internet, but it's even a local currency of wherever your locality is, because yeah. since there's no since there's no common you know centralized point it needs to go through, legitimately it's just person to person. So it doesn't matter where you are, and that's the fun part about Bitcoin is that you know you can be a person in one town talking exactly to a person, you know, talking to a person in another town, sending them value, and it's just as easy. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. The the ability to include international audiences is huge. It really is. You know, and and you said it, it's hard to monetize this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you did it for seven years. I just got out of the game for a long time because I, you know, it 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 was this is always something podcasting is always something that I've done despite the costs because oh, yeah. it's important yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah, rather than the other way around. Yeah. And so with Bitcoin, you know, so like when we receive like two hundred dollars worth of donations from a single person, that's like more than I made in a year, you know, on 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 my project in two thousand six. And it's it's pathetic, but it's because like we were using CPM ads when we had, you know, we had like ten thousand subscribers. So it wasn't even that small a base. It just was that there was no effective way to do this. Right, right. And so you mentioned something in your talk at at, at the it's, and I'll have it linked by the way in the show notes so folks if you want to go watch about thirty minutes it's a really good talk and one of the things you said you. and, and <clears throat> so there's a few things that I find a barrier to this uh, one of which is just getting money into Bitcoin but uh, hopefully uh, that's a problem that will that will take care of itself I I think that you know, when I look at uh, Bitcoin donations we've gotten a couple of uh, big donations and they've also mostly been small donations. And you started to say something in your talk, and you didn't quite complete your thought. But it was essentially you would rather get hundreds of tiny donations than a single large donation. I'm actually having to rethink that because what I discovered is that when you get all of these tiny donations, mm-hmm. what happens is that your transaction sizes wind up being huge. Like this is this actually gets into kind of the technical side of Bitcoin. But the way that you format a, a, but the way that you send value with Bitcoin, if you have like a whole bunch of tiny transactions, is essentially it bundles them all together and forms this giant, you know, input list and then outputs a smaller amount at the other end. So you actually, if you're trying to make small payments when you have very, very small inputs, like if I'm trying to send 0.05 or something, a lot of times that'll be added up from, you know, 15 smaller donations. And so you wind up with a situation where, uh, where the transactions are quite large because it's based on the number of inputs rather than the actual amount that you're transmitting. So, so, uh, so that has made me rethink just a little bit about the not wanting to receive uh, larger donations. But w- the re- reason why I brought that up in the talk and the reason why it's relevant is because, you know, it's it's much better if this is a sustainable thing. You know, we do the show twice a week. You do your show. You know, you do Plan B once a week, but you're doing other shows every day of the week, pretty much. Right. You know. So, I mean. So it, it, it doesn't help when somebody sends a lot of value and then people are like, okay, well, I guess that's enough value for that particular show. You know, it's much better if instead everybody, you know, sends 0.02 or 0.05 every show. Now, well, what about measuring? That, do you, can you measure how much the audience enjoyed an episode based on your donations? When you get low donations, you go, oh, geez, the audience must have not really liked that episode. Actually, no. What happens is we get exhaustion. <laughs> we're we're like uh, so, like I said, we're we're five or six weeks into the show now. And what happens is that after we got back from the Bitcoin 2013 conference, we got a couple of big donations mm-hmm. and a bunch of small donations. But we started putting out content so fast, each piece with its own widget, that we overwhelmed our audience. Yeah. 
And so, so that, I mean, that's my read of it. We're, we're really figuring this out. I, what I'm, what I'm interested in doing right now and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to guinea pig all of these models because mm -hmm. somebody has to be the first one to do it and prove that this stuff actually works and that this isn't just some crazy, you know, ideological thing that I've got in my head. And, you know, I think we're doing a pretty good job with that so far, but there's a lot, there's definitely a lot more to do. Now I can tell you about something else I have coming out in sure. addition to the audio. Uh, so in addition to the audio show, let's talk Bitcoin, we're actually getting ready to roll out a complete relaunch and a recreation of the dailybitcoin.com. Oh. And so what it is right now is a content aggregation site, right? Yeah, Where yeah. we have a daily newspaper basically that pulls uh, pulls the best articles. One of my associates, George Ettinger, is the editor of that property. And he essentially reads everything about Bitcoin and then picks his favorite articles and then puts them up there. And then that's what that's what the, the daily becomes. So what we're moving to actually is an expansion of this tip jar based model where it's going to be an all original content blog. I've already got 19 authors who are working on pieces for it. And the whole monetization model is that. Uh, we run the platform. The Let's Talk Bitcoin team is running the platform, which is the website. And we're going to uh, you know, sell sponsorships in kind of the classical way. But for writers who participate, they're going to have a tip jar embedded where 80% of it goes to the writer and 20% of it goes to whoever the editor was on that piece. That's awesome. It's super awesome. And so, so you have somebody writing code to, to manage that for you? or how Because that sounds like that could be a headache you know, administrative-wise. It's a little bit of a headache administrative-wise. It definitely takes infrastructure, and the first launch that we're coming out with isn't going to have the split built in, but everything other than that is going to be there. Wow. And so I, I, I'm really excited about this because what it means is it completely, you know, I mean, I, I, so, you know, you're on the audio side. On the text side, people write for free all the time. Like, mm -hmm. that is the normal thing to do, especially in niche areas like this where there aren't that many outlets that have eyeballs. So the idea of being able to pull together all of these writers with all of these different perspectives, have them write, you know, whatever it is that they want. And we go through with the editorial process with them to make sure that, you know, that it's, it's quality to put out. Sure. But beyond that, uh, you know, and then be able to just see what comes in and see, you know, see what the readers actually appreciate and what they don't. I think that's a really powerful opportunity. But beyond that, from a platform perspective, it means that we have no disadvantage to having as many writers on our team as possible. You know, yeah, because we don't pay them. We right. don't pay the writers. We don't pay the editors. The so content is what generates the payment. Exactly. The content generates the payment. So all we have to do is curate the content that comes in. And then basically the, the, the platform gets to exist because of this. And the writers get the advantage. And the more writers, the more I because they all bring their audiences with them. The more eyeballs we get, the more people are likely to tip, the more people are likely to, you know, tip and the more likely to read, the more valuable the platform is. So it's really this like it's this self-reinforcing cycle of content producing eyeballs, producing tips, producing content, and so on and so forth until you get to a point where, you know, it just it all it's it, like a perpetual and motion. I think it's it's hard to totally fully appreciate the ramification of that. But the but the actual direct the 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 long term result of that is the audience directly drives via funding what that outlet focuses on, right? So if the mainstream media was actually paid by the people that watch it, what the mainstream media actually talks about would be diametrically different than what they actually covered now, right? Exactly. And so exactly. By, by funding via the audience, you have no one, you are responsible to no one but the people that are clicking that widget. 
That's exactly right. And because of that, because it's the audience driving the content, it means that the sponsors are actually secondary. It means that the sponsors for the platform, you know, they have no pull whatsoever because they're not, you know, because the content is completely irrelevant as Mm -hmm. far as they're concerned. All they are is the infrastructure cost. This is how I've structured my podcasting network, but there's... You know, I've always done this with with traditional payment methods, you know, and all all of my sponsor agreements are through traditional payment methods. And Bitcoin has always been sort of the missing piece to directly connect me with the payment uh, provider. And so I'm I'm extremely excited to watch where you go with this, Adam. We're going to be experimenting with this stuff, too. So let's trade notes as we go forward and figure out what works, because like you said, this space, you you know, let's talk Bitcoin and plan B. We are here so early in this that there we are there. We have. We have not. This is not competition at all. We have not even seen competition yet. Competition will come much further down the road. Right now, I say let's trade notes back and forth on this because I think once we figure this out, people will follow that model. And this is going to be one more thing that drives Bitcoin adoption. Well, that's that's exactly right. You know, and uh, and yeah, I mean, my my goal with this project actually confidentially is to confidentially on the podcast right, right. is to <laughs> is to. Uh, you know, is to spawn at least two competing sites that steal our model within the first two months. I think it's going to happen. I think we could do it, but, but that'll, that'll be the hallmark of success. It is, showing right? That, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That'll be the hallmark of success, showing that this is working is when we've you when know, got lots of competition. It. Yep, that absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, um, very good. You know, but, but it's really exciting to me because, you know, because again, it, beyond even the, the direct implications, right? So you're talking about the audience controls the message. Well, that's great. But the other part is, is that, Writers get paid for a longer period of time, mm. you know, because if you even if you do get paid to write, I mean, I think that, that that's what's going to happen here. The adoption curve that we'll see with this sort of model will be people who write for free will be the start of it. But eventually they're going to wind up making more than people who get paid to do this. Yeah. You know, because I mean, you, you get paid like two hundred and fifty dollars an article, five hundred dollars an article, maybe. And, you know, it doesn't take that many bitcoins for a valuable article that's read by, you know, 30,000 people in order to, you know, in order to kind of beat those numbers and make them look real stupid for for right. signing that exclusive. And- and, and that's not even getting into the deflationary aspect where that, you know, you've, oh, yeah. a, a one Bitcoin today could be worth a heck of a lot more three years from now if you sit well, on it. Well, and that so. makes it easier to sell. Absolutely. That makes it easier to sell to the writers because it's like, okay, well, you know, you're getting started at this early point, but Bitcoin is probably a lot, you know, less expensive right now than it will be otherwise. So people mm-hmm. will be donating larger, relatively speaking. So now you have the, uh, the deflationary model helps in all kinds of ways. And, you know, I, there... I, I've got another thing that I can't tell you, but I'm so excited about it. We've basically made a very, very big discovery, I think, when it comes to advertising in general and what you can do because of Bitcoin. So I'm going to be talking about that. I'm speaking at the uh, at the uh, Inside Bitcoins conference in New York City on uh, January. I'm sorry, on July 30th of uh, this year. And we'll, I'm really hoping that it'll be ready and I can roll it out at that point. Because if we can do that, then I think that we really will have a killer app for Bitcoin that will reinvent the space entirely. That'll be huge. You know, that's definitely something that'll uh, have my attention because uh, we've been talking with sponsors. I know you guys have too. And it's one of those things where um, I feel I feel like I'm doing a lot of the legwork in like f- figuring out how to do sponsor agreements was a lot easier when we were doing it in dollars. Now that we're talking in Bitcoin figures, it's... Um, it's a lot harder because sometimes just at the beginning of the conversation and the end of the conversation, that figure that was originally quoted is much different. Um, so I, I'm I'm very you know I'm very cautious on how to approach this, but I'm very fascinated by it. Let me tell you a secret. So the trick to selling sponsorships is to offer a Bitcoin price and a U.S. dollar price mm-hmm. and make the U.S. dollar price more expensive. 
<laughs> I mean, seriously, that's it. Yeah, you're right. You're going, right, right. That is makes a lot of sense. Actually, you're gonna, you know, you you give you put the it's it's all about incentives. You know, you put the right incentives out there, and people, you know, if they if they're interested in what you're doing, then they'll start with the U.S. dollar price, and then they'll go for the Bitcoin price for the savings. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's really in a way, it's it's just it's trying to it's trying to encourage you know keeping everything Bitcoin. It's a Bitcoin show. I want the sponsorships to be done in Bitcoin and all of that. And I think. In any form it is, if it's writing, if it's podcasting, Bitcoin is going to is going to pay a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have wouldn't have had a voice in the past. So I'm excited to watch where you guys are going with it. I'm excited to see where gonna where we're gonna go with it. Adam, uh, I, is there anything else you want to touch on before we let you go? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, there is. Uh, yeah, there's one it. more thing. Totally. <laughs> so, so uh, I was at the Bitcoin conference, right? And so the last night I was there, I wound up having dinner with the uh, with the uh, videographers from Red Pill Recording. Who oh, okay. Filmed about half of the uh, filmed about half of the talks at the Bitcoin conference, and I talked to them about this con- about this concept of you know, and, and turns out that they had been given they had been comped tickets, but they weren't actually being paid for any of the things that they were doing, and so they didn't really know when they were going to get the videos out because there wasn't really any incentives. So I was yeah. like, well, you know, you should just put a QR code with your uh, you should put a QR code with your um, Bitcoin payment address on the videos for a short period of time so that people who want to give you value for the value that you're bringing them because people were just biting at the chomping at the bit to get these uh, talks from the conference yeah. and they were about a week late in coming. Yeah. So, so they did that and got them out faster than they would have otherwise. And the last time I checked, they'd collected more than three Bitcoins worth of donations in about a week. No kidding. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've, been, I've been thinking about doing like a little QR code on our, I, so the, the, the two things that bother me right now about Bitcoin in a very big way as a publisher is, and you've said this yourself too, the QR code, the QR code is ugly, right? But the other thing you've said is that Bitcoin address is hairy. It's nasty, and yeah. I don't like the way it looks. I don't. You can't read it on air. You, you know, in an audio form, it just com- it's completely awful. It's about as bad as it can get. Yep. Um, and that is a huge. That is a. I wish there was like short URLs. I wish I could say bit.ly slash Plan B, and I wish that would you know that would work. Um, so I've thought about putting the QR code on my screen, but honestly, my, my sense of taste isn't, is, is holding me back from doing it, but it sounds like it might be worth it. I think it is. I mean, I, I really think that that's the, that's the lesson here is that, you know, we have to get over this idea that asking for money is wrong because right, it's not, right. I mean, ultimately we ask for money anyways. This is just even, I mean, this is like even a less personalized way to do it. So actually we just started releasing our, our shows, you know, our audio shows on YouTube and uh, we've been putting QR codes on it. So, I, you know, they're not different QR codes than we have going to the regular show. So I can't tell which donations are coming in from that versus the other. Hmm. But I don't see a downside to having it. And honestly, after seeing, you know, that three Bitcoins was for more than 40 donors. So, you know, I mean, those are big numbers for, for tips on, on something like that. And that was, I believe, the first implementation of a, of a YouTube uh, QR, you know, tip widget well, that's awesome. sort of thing. Yeah, because, you know, and, and I was going to say earlier... I would rather have a hundred small donations than one really large donation because it lets me know that a hundred people appreciated the content instead of one person. Right. I mean, there's definitely an element of that. You know, the feedback element as far as, you know, being able to say, oh, yeah, well, that's something that people obviously really like. And we get those, too. You know, I, I downplayed that, but there definitely are episodes. It's it's not so much about the episodes that people don't appreciate as it is about the ones that they so obviously do. Our right. Ripple episode, for example, people went nuts over that, yeah. you know, because we had a half-hour interview with uh, with uh, the chief cryptographer, David Schwartz. And, you know, that, that one got a lot of small donations. You know, numerically, actually, it was quite similar to other shows in 
in terms of the amount that was donated totally, but the number was much higher. So right. yeah, right. there are definitely all these rich metrics that you can yeah. kind of get yeah. into. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it'd be interesting too to you know down the road you could have you could have one address on the video version, one address on the audio version. Right. And you know, then you could, as a publisher, determine which ones actually generate you the revenue, so you know where I should actually be focusing my efforts. Uh, Adam, I have a feeling we're just at the very beginning of all of the discussions that can be had around this stuff. So uh, keep up the awesome work you're doing over at letstalkbitcoin.com and the Daily Bitcoin. We'll be sure to uh, keep an eye out there for the changes coming to uh, the Daily Bitcoin. Sounds pretty exciting. Hey, absolutely, and thanks a lot for having me on Plan B. All right, Adam, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Later, Chris. Bye. All right, Mr. Drew, what do you say we move on with some of the discussion topics that we have? Yeah, let's go. All right, so I wanted to bust a little, uh, I wanted to bust this, it's it's something I've thought about, and now it's been put into writing, and I don't actually know if I want to say bust a myth, because there's actually something I think there's a little legitimacy to this. So there was an article that ran uh, this last week, and it was by security advisor Roger Grimms, I don't know if you're familiar with his name, but I think we've covered him on TechSnap a couple of times. And he wrote this long post over at InfoWorld saying that the Liberty Reserve debacle casts a new light on Bitcoin, which reminds us we cannot trust or e-currencies. Not just Bitcoin, but all of them. You can't trust any of them, Drew. Ever, no. And, and now here's the problem. I can't actually necessarily think of counter arguments to his points. Uh, number one, in the real world, if you lose your credit card, checkbook, or even a bank account, or say like your login password to your bank account, your money isn't gone. In fact, there are lots of services and laws to protect your money, not so in the e-currency world. You know, if you lose your login to blockchain, you lose your bitcoins, they're gone. Ultimately, most e-currencies possess the security of whatever your email address and password is. If hackers break into your computer and learn your password, or even break in and steal all your money at the bank, it'll be replaced fairly quickly. This is absolutely not the case with e-currency. I'm not saying the e-currency schemes are evil, and I'm not saying that fiat money is perfectly trustable or protected. The runaway inflation has led to wheelbarrows of money being exchanged in... <laughs> oh, man, he gets... He, he, then he goes Nazi. <laughs> oh, no, he went Nazi. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. But I think his points are accurate. Like, if somebody if somebody steals my credit card and charges like a thousand bucks to my account, I can call up my bank and say, that wasn't me. I didn't, I didn't charge that. And they'll, in a lot of cases, reverse the charge. And that's a kind of like safety balloon that, um, you know, Bitcoin just isn't offering. It's pervasive across, you know, the, the, the regular financial infrastructure. But, right. I mean, I, 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 third parties can, can jump in and fill this role. Like, they can offer people services to better protect, you know, their private keys and all that and better protect their money for a fee, I would think. So, I mean, it's not, you know, with, with e-currencies, it's not implicitly, you know, you can't, it's not like impossible where you can't have any, any kind of chargeback function or, or multiple, you know, right. uh, keeping your money in multiple places yeah, or multiple I, yeah. backups. Yeah. No, I, I, you nailed it, Drew. I mean, I think what Roger is doing right now is he's looking at the current implementation and he's taking the current implementation and he's blowing it up to a whole scale system. Yeah, and, and, then, and then, you know, pro, uh, projecting it across time because I think right. we'll see services that will fulfill this role Dude, at some point soon. The last four or five weeks on the show, we've been covering the massive amount of VC funding that's coming in specifically with the intention of funding infrastructure services just like the types of services that will solve this kind of problem. Yeah, and there's a bunch. Of, I mean, well, there's a bunch of issues. Well, ah, all right, go on. I forgot. I lost, I lost my uh, train of thought. Well, and I know. I mean, I think you nailed it. Really, it's it's sort of like it's sort of like uh, saying, you know, proclaiming that it's not going to work in its current implementation. So uh, he says the trust equation isn't even close between the two. You might be able to argue that now. I think online merchants could argue that uh, no chargebacks is a huge benefit to them, 
and there's a whole trust aspect for them to that. Right. Uh, all right. So the Genesis block, we had their uh, uh, who we had their chief editor on the show last week, and uh, he uh, he wrote a piece uh, that, uh, or actually Jonathan over there did, said the time for the stateless global currency is fast approaching, Drew. Oh, <laughs> it's a it's a pretty good article too. Everybody should check it out. Tell me about it a little bit. Um, so I have a couple quotes in here that uh, might give some uh, information, you know, to give you some a good general view of the current monetary system. But uh, one of the uh, earlier quotes was the he says uh, the committee. What she was talking about was the uh, open mark open market uh, something committee from the uh, Federal Reserve. So that committee has chosen to grow its balance sheet by $85 billion per month. So a week or two ago, we were asking, you know, how much is the Federal Reserve actually injecting money into the uh, federal government for that? But uh, Right. $85 so, billion a month is the total. Yeah. Per month to well over $3 trillion in total by monetar- uh, monetizing U.S. Treasury and agency debt. According, uh, accordingly, the long-term outlook for the value of, the US- of USD will be subject not only to the supply of new money, but also bubbles caused by synthetic support for state-favored asset classes so, and record high national debt like the housing market. Right. And and so what that's saying is that the Federal Reserve is printing a ton of money, but it's different than it's been in the past. We're not actually printing dollars and then distributing dollars out into the economy. We're just going into databases and putting new numbers in database fields where there were zeros before. Right. It's a, it's a very, it's a funny business. It's, it's a, a very funny money going on. And so it's actually much harder to sort of observe the impact of. And there's been some articles written this last week uh, about how, uh, you know, why haven't we seen out of control inflation with the rampant printing that's going on? And the reason is, is because it's essentially a lot of the economic boom that you're hearing the mainstream media cover in the housing market and in the bond market are being driven by these purchases from the Federal Reserve. Exactly. The money's being injected into these particular sectors. So that's, that's why we saw a huge, you know, well, why do we think that that um, that uh, the cost of higher education is continually increasing as the government gets greater? Because they're the ones who own the actual loans now. They're the ones who that service the loans. Like, yeah. there's no third party. They're, the federal government is essentially backing federal loans. And as you can see, the, the cost of this, just as, as, as was in housing, is increasing significantly. It's, it's you know, it's not sustain, uh, and this sustainable goes, long this term. Goes, this is what's so funny, right? Is because this is this is how we. Th- it just shows you how we frame things as as a society. Because Roger Grimm's is talking about how trustworthy these institutions are, and how how we can rely on them. When in, in reality, they're just they're just they are. I guess the better way to put it is they're chipping away at the foundation of our economy right now. They are they are being re- they are responsible for one of the biggest bubbles that could burst, the bond bubble. If that, oh yeah, I yeah, mean. Yeah. That could make 2008 look look like, like a minor event. True, okay, yeah. so to say you can trust these organizations, I think is potentially. I don't want to call Roger Grimm's naive, but I I don't Grimes. I don't think he's. I don't think he's thinking about the track record that companies like HSBC have, and and how how in reality we're all kind of end up in a bad spot. I mean, you know, our wasn't that or, wasn't that LIBOR scandal a a little internal thing amongst large banks, their lending rate, uh, yeah, interest yeah. rate between banks. Where they would agree, where they would agree, up, they uh, would agree upon an, an, an exchange rate between each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. They could just make that up. And also the thing about, you know, money being injected or, or uh, bond purchases is that the, the money is being distributed by banks. So it's the first point at which they're kind of entering the economy. And when, the, before they, they uh, percolate or, you know, percolate the economy, I guess, trillions of dollars, they're going through that, that single pipeline. So at the point at which, the money from banks is being invested in or taken out in loans and being spent on certain certain processes that 
that money has that that amount of value there. But once that money kind of percolates across the entire uh, economy, the, the money that has been recently injected decreases the overall value of everybody else's money. So the people who are getting the greatest benefit um, by creating money are the people who are actually divvying it up, like the banks and distributing well, it and injecting it in the market. Because that- they're, they're having it at a higher value than it has later on once it actually makes its way through the economy. Don't you feel like this will be one of the areas where history judges our society at its current point the most harshest? Is that in a- <laughs> What are they doing? <laughs> in, in, in a historic record low interest rate for like seven years straight now, or I think, and outrageously high amounts of money printing, there has never been- a larger wealth gap between the top and the bottom. And it is so devastatingly large now that people like people who like make a couple million dollars a year, they think they're part of the 1% and they think they're so well off. They are jump change. They are puny little tiny people who are poor compared to the top 1%. Never have we had such disparity ever. Look at what it is now. Go Google this. And history is going to look back at this and it is going to judge harshly and this and the whole system is set up to encourage this and and honestly i think this is why a lot of people like me are sort of hopeful that cryptocurrencies and things like bitcoin can be successful because it's sort of changing it up is sort of take it's removing the power directly from those people i don't think in my lifetime it's going to be completely removed but it's it's at least shifting some of the power yeah it's it's, it's, moving in, it's, it's a side right economy direction. in a sense right it's like a shadow economy pretty much in yeah. a way. i mean and, and it's getting rid of, it's getting rid of like i always keep saying it's getting the rid. Uh, it's getting rid of the need for borders. So countries, certain regulations within these geographical areas, they're mostly. I mean, a lot of these things are just arbitrary. You know, somebody made this rule. Here it is. So you have these hurdles you have to jump through to, you know, right. uh, exchange well, value. Well, you, you sent your money across this imaginary line that we drew on this map that we yeah, all we ago. all just pretend like is a real line. Yeah, that's an extra five percent cut for me right. <laughs> on that transaction. So you remember last week we were talking a little bit how like there was some hubbub going on on the light. Litecoin mining pools about potential issues and 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 them getting the Litecoin developers involved. Yeah, so they they weren't talking about the the, the Litecoin infrastructure itself, but there was a there was a bug within the uh, uh, mining software that was being run on like WeMine LTC and I think LitecoinPool.org and a couple of different pools. So but, there was like fake miners and they were running, they were clocking up to 150 mega hashes for three to four days. They said they suspect that more cheaters were involved in the past few days. And they could have been at least partially to blame for the pool's bad luck. Right. Because, yeah, a lot of these pools were, were not finding many blocks. So these guys are getting paid for the, the shares that they're contributing. And, uh, but they're kind of forging those shares, I believe, is what, is what was going on. That's interesting. They even called out one of the miners, CryptoPower. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> they put his, uh, I think it's his, uh, his Litecoin address in the article as well, or on, on, the, on the Bitcoin uh, or the, the, the forum post there. He's Louise. But so, people were just jacking up their hash rates and getting some, you know, some dinero that way. But it, it's already been fixed. So the devs already fixed it and they're, they're working on getting a bunch of other pools, um, any pools that were affected that are actually running the buggy software. So, it was mul- so multiple pools are running this buggy software, huh? Pretty much, yeah. And they fixed it pretty quick. So, I mean, that's a good sign for them getting in touch with the Litecoin devs and all that. For they did it work. Yeah, they worked well together. Yeah. And uh, we'll see, you know, I, I hope Litecoin sees some activity because uh, it, it does seem people are a little more, it seems like, it sounds like people are a little more generous with Litecoin. Um, speaking of things that uh, are not looking up, Mt. Gox, after some uh, discussions, I guess Technocash, the Australian uh, Australian service that helped fund your Mt. Gox account, they are going to, uh, quote unquote, they have decided that Australian customers will no longer be able to deposit or withdraw funds in Australian dollars using Technocash beginning June 15th. So if that's what your funding method, you got a couple of days to get it out. 
Yeah, I don't know how pervasive that is in Australia, but I mean, it's just like a another negative blow for the Gox. Yeah, no kidding, right? Gox it's like is every just week, like, right? Because every, every week we have something like this, you know, yeah. something going on. Gox is like just taking one blow after another, starting yeah, to become the hit. underdog. <laughs> I know, right? Maybe in five years, I'll be like, come on, Gox, we need you back. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, you know, there's one thing I wanted to give a special mention to this week as we kind of uh, wind down the Plan B show. Uh, something that when I was coming back into Bitcoin, because people who maybe haven't followed since the beginning of the show, I was very, very passionate about Bitcoin for, for a long time. I set, up a, I set up a mining setup at home of multiple rigs. And then I had one just catastrophic, embarrassing failure after another that kind of just said, all right, I'm putting this on hold and I put it on the shelf. And when I came back, I discovered this incredible service called Bitcoin Tip on Reddit. Are you familiar with Bitcoin Tip, Drew? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen some stuff about it. I haven't it's, used it, though. Yeah, you might have seen it if you're hanging out in like the Bitcoin subreddit and people will have some sort of insightful comment and then somebody will tip that person in Bitcoin using the comments. You just leave a comment, say Bitcoin Tip, and you give the person's name and then it gives that person Bitcoins. It's a bot that lives on Reddit and it trolls through uh, it, it. It I guess I shouldn't say troll, but it reads it goes through, through all the comments. And it looks yeah. at the strings of text yeah. and sees and a specific. It's set. a way to pass. It's a way to pass bitcoins back and forth on Reddit as a thank you for good content, either either a story link or just comments. And uh, they've reached uh, the one year mark yesterday. So uh, happy cake day to the Bitcoin tip bot. And I just wanted to just kind of direct people over there because one of the things that's happened recently is now you can Bitcoin tip people site-wide. And the way it works is you just sort of pre-charge a little Bitcoin account and you can withdraw at any time if you want. And uh, then you tip people. If they don't claim it within 30 days, uh, you get the Bitcoin amount back. And the way that works is they get a message if you tip them. And then it's essentially, if you do it in the right circumstance, it, it it's <laughs> people can have absolutely zero interest in Bitcoin until they have some. True. Yeah. It yeah. might be something to spark. Like, you know, like, like they had the little tabs where people were giving tips with a little Bitcoin address thing in there, you know, as we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just I really like this service because it's it's a great way to sort of spread the Bitcoin word. And they've even got um, they've got I don't know if they have it linked here in there. Uh, I think they have like a website over at BitcoinTip.com or something like that where you can actually see like which uh, threads are generating money. And some actually generate like there's a couple of threads that have generated like 30, 60 bucks in the last couple of weeks. Oh, here we go. So if you go over to bitcointip.com, I think Bitcoin, no, bitcointip.net. That's what you do. No, I don't know where you go. Anyways, but they have, there is a link. You can find a thread somewhere where they actually are tracking how much revenue different Reddit threads make now that it's been turned on all across Reddit. That's cool. And when I checked yesterday, in the last three or four days, there's as much as $40 on one thread have been given in USD equivalents in Bitcoin. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah, this stuff is going to be way more pervasive. It's going to be really cool to see how, I mean, because, you know, for, for the Bitcoin tip kind of thing to get outside of Reddit and go to other applications, it's going to be cool to see, you know, pretty clearly how much people value this relative to that. Um, so go check out uh, bitcointip.reddit.com if you're curious about that. You can go pre-fund a little account. I've been using it for a while. It's just a nice way to say thanks to people who spread links about our shows and the subreddits and things like that. It's just a nice way to say, hey, great, great contribution. You know what I mean? So very yes, good. sir. There you go. We'll have links to everything we talked about. You can go find links to all of Adam B. Levine's goodies in the show notes, as well as links to all the stories we talked about. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this show, we are accepting tips. We have our address and a QR code in the show notes towards the bottom of this episode. And we're live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv, which is 
5 p.m. Eastern. Is that right? 5 p.m. Eastern, I think. Over uh, at yeah, JB it Live. is. And jblive.info for the audio version. We also appreciate any mentions you could give us in the iTunes store to help people discover the show. That's a good way to uh, spread visibility and let people know about the Bitcoin word by spreading it in iTunes. So thanks for everybody who rates and leaves us a comment. Don't forget, we'd love to hear from you too. Email us plan B at jupiterbroadcasting.com or join our subreddit where you can submit links or suggestions to the show planbshow.reddit.com. Hey, Drew. Hey. Thanks for the great show. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Sounds good. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning to this week's episode of Plan B. We'll see you right back here next week.